Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. We bring you the very best recorded panels, workshops, and seminars concerning role-playing game design and publishing. This has been made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and Double Exposure with their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 100, Structuring Game Texts, recorded at Metatopia 2015, presented by Robert Bull, Jason Pitt, Kat Tobin, and Jay Treat. Okay, hi everyone, welcome to Structuring Game Texts. Um, uh, I'm Robert Bull. Jay Treat. I'm Kat Tobin. And Jason Pitt. Um, uh, I think we're all game designer. Are you game designer as well? Or? Um, no, I'm a publisher. Okay. So I own and uh, I'm the managing director of Pelagrain Press. I probably should have done this earlier before I had us introduce ourselves, but I'm a role-playing game designer. I design Misspent Youth. Uh, I primarily design board games, but I also design LARPs and maybe RPGs. <laughs> uh, and I'm a uh, role-playing game design uh Designer, publisher, occasionally edit some things. Okay, so we're here to talk about how to structure a game text. And the first thing we want to talk about is that structure matters, just like system matters, you know. Um, I feel, based on my experience, that a lot of people, when they're structuring their games, they're just going, what's the game I already know, and how do I just, I'll just do it in that order. But... It matters a lot, you know, that you, that you make sure, and interrupt me anytime you want to, um, that we make sure that, that the structure fits the game and structure fits the way the book is going to be used. Uh, and so that's what we're going to talk about today, how to think about it and stuff. Um, so uh, I guess I'll start talking about the nominal RPG structure that I'm familiar with. Um, and when I talk about the nominal one, I'm going to have Jay talk about board games. Um, when I talk about the nominal one, like I just mean that's what's in my head is the thing that I see most often, and it's not a value judgment because that system might work well for certain games. Um, but what I see often is people show their stats, and then they show their resolution, and then they show their character creation with a reference to play procedures in a separate section of the book or maybe another book uh, altogether. And I personally feel that for most game texts, that's probably not the best way to structure them because that's maybe not how they're used. Um, but but for certain games, it is. As I've started to learn, as I've gotten into, you know, writing other games and, and figuring out, oh, certain kinds of complexity requires that you do things in certain ways. But um, what do you see the nominal board game structure as being like? So you always want to give players uh, the quickest possible uh, idea of what kind of game they're going to be playing because they could be playing very different types of games. Uh, if, you're, if you're teaching a cooperative game, that needs to be you know one of the first three words that you say hmm. uh, because that's not the default. Um, so if you're tre- if you're teaching a trick-taking game, like say that right up front. You know your first your first sentence is your pitch of what the game is, and you need to get that information out there immediately. Um, not just not just trying to sell a you know a game idea to a publisher, but trying to get players to play a game, to learn a game. Um, if you if you start in with um, 
you know, unrelated, like, specific details. Oh, man, this game's so awesome because you get to fight aliens or... or uh, well, okay, so fight aliens is thematic, <laughs> and that's actually pretty helpful. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but you definitely, you, you have to get... Um, you acquire victory points. Right, you acquire victory points is not a helpful thing. <laughs> that was a helpful suggestion of what is not a helpful thing to say. Um, yeah, uh, you, you want to try and get the, the top level... And then from there you could say, and this is the, these are the kinds of things that you'll be doing in this game. Um, this is the flavor for the players that will help um, that them to learn the game through the flavor. And then you can start going through the specifics of how the game is structured, what the things are, and 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 you know the, those details after you've established that initial um, concept. And Jay uh, reminds me of something that I discovered with role-playing game design, too, which is that it's good to have a little blurb out front, like a paragraph, that says, here are the characters you play, here's what they do in the game, uh, and, you know, maybe a few other exciting details. Uh, because for me, I, I, a lot of this thinking for me is coming from reading, beginning to read, and finishing, uh, I began to write all the Three Forged RPG design contest games, and I finished 38 of them. And the ones that I finished usually had some; they were the structure was really meaningful to me. So, do you guys want to? Yeah. Um, do you have anything? Um, yeah. So I, th- I think that um, I think that a role playing game takes place in a world. So I think that in my experience, a lot of role playing games will, will first of all tend to set out the world. Where do you play it? How do you play it? What's the genre? Is it sci-fi? Is it modern day? Is it fantasy? Um, if it's a, an established genre like fantasy, then you don't need to spend too much time in the world because a lot of people already understand that. But if you're creating a brand new world, then then describing the world in which your game takes place or describing the kind of experiences you're going to have in the world in which your game takes place comes first and then kind of character generation and then kind of the mechanics of how you play those characters in that world kind of tend to come afterwards. And I, I, that, that, to me, is a kind of an intuitive way to, to, to structure things because you, you, you tell people where they are first and then who they are in that world, and then everything else is, is kind of gravy on top of that, I think. So. Yeah, that's completely solid. Um, my brain goes automatically to the audiences and the purposes of, of game texts. Because I think that's a pretty rock-solid foundation for the, for the discussion. Because role-playing game tes- texts in particular have a heck of a time because they have to be a direct instruction text. They have to teach the teacher, so that it's a teacher's manual. It has to be a reference text. Uh, it has to clearly communicate setting elements and cultural approaches there. And it has to be like the 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 number of different things feeding into this. Well, just add in it has to be a fun read too. It has to be entertaining on top of all of that. Like it can't just be a textbook. It has to be a textbook. You're like, I love reading this textbook. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it has to have examples. Yeah, it has to be show what is going on in actual play, so people more context channels, Uh, illustrations. Uh, it has how to be some amount of genre fiction to actually get... Yeah, to, to give a flavor yeah. of what the world is. Mm-hmm. Or and is the, there's so many masters that we're trying to serve. There's always going to be compromises. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a beautiful example is I was recently structuring a game text. The best thing for clarity would have been to have a running example with each step in a process. 
I was also the one doing layout. This would have been impossible and it would have broken the layout. So I had to combine this into a single section that was over two pages instead of having it running with the examples. So it drops clarity, but because of layout, I couldn't actually keep the running example because that would have also broken clarity. Hmm. So there's a lot of compromises going on here. Um, and also, it's good if other people do your layout for you because doing all of these things is maddening. So yeah. My personal take, the thing that I always try to do is I try to write a book such that you pick it up and you can play it. Like the first thing the book tells you to do is the first thing you need to do in the game. And, and it tells you the next thing to do when you next need to do it. And I actually picked that up from um, it's a board game. They did a fantasy version and a World War II version. Battle? That's it, I think. Yeah. Battle and Lord. what Battle Lord does is it tells you, um, and I'm not a board game guy at all. I actually really don't like board games, but occasionally when I force myself to do board games, I'm like, oh, I learned something. Uh, <laughs> but um, Battle Lore, like, it tells you, all right, do this, then do this, then do this, which is what most board games do. And I don't know why most role playing games don't do that. Um, and then it says, okay, um, and now now we'll add in other rules by saying, here's the next game you'll play, and here are all these other rules that you'll play. And actually, I haven't taken that part of it. You know, all I did was take sort of the core other part, but I found that very helpful. I, th I think there are a couple of different. Um, I think there are two that I can think of off the top of my head. Different ways in which a role playing game can be structured. Um, and the first way is with the presumption that a GM will take that book, yeah. read that book, and then transmit that information to their players in the group. And the second way, um, which tends to happen, I think, a bit more with indie games and story games, is the, the presumption is that the players will take that book and effectively read and transmit that information as they're going through the game so that there won't be any pre-existing information or pre-existing knowledge. They'll just run it as they're going, effectively. And I think... I think you need to structure a text in different ways depending on yep. how you're planning on transmitting the information to the players. And there's definitely a correlation there mm -hmm. between GM'd games and GM-less games. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so quick question. That's a, that's a great point, mm -hmm. who they're expecting to read. Um, as someone who's not in the RPG mm -hmm. field, um, is there any, <coughs> other than somebody telling you, mm -hmm. is there any way to know which of those books that would be? Do they... Is there any? Are there any giveaways? Uh, giveaway. Is it uh, more than two hundred pages? <laughs> is it more than thirty dollars? If it is, in, if it's meeting the, those two criteria, odds are much higher that the intent is that a GM will read it and digest it. Mm -hmm. If it's in the here's a hundred page digest style twenty dollar book, odds are that is in the indie game footprint where. They're trying to desperately maximize sales and get every players to every player to buy a copy of the book, <laughs> um, and it's small enough that it's people can actually read it at the table and pro proceed from there. My my version of it is you decide who's going to read it by what you write. You know, you decide as a game designer. I want this to be a game that I expect everyone to know the rules for. I want this to be a game that one person is going to digest. And, and then regurgitate. And I also think that while it's nice if you've got a book that you could just pick up and follow along with, I don't think even no matter how good of a job you do, it, most games are probably going to do better if you've read the book and then you use the book to follow through. Mm -hmm. um, 
So yeah, that's that's my take on that. <laughs> um, there's a couple specific. Sorry, don't want to interrupt. There's a couple specific books that do a really good and interesting job and are worth highlighting. One, Microscope does a fantastic job of step by step by step. This is what the game is. Here's how you get started. If you know what's what you're, what's going on, go to this page. Otherwise, here is the step to go and play the game. And it works. It, it's one of the best, better organized texts I've found. The other one is Mythender. The reason why I'm saying Mythender is this one would actually be in the GM Reads the Rules category. It's pretty, it's moderately thick, as far as an indie game goes. It's got a lot of com- complexity to it. But there's a full tutorial section in there. So there's a tutorial battle that teaches you everything. You just follow the steps. Uh, Ryan Macklin did a fantastic job on that front. And I want other people to steal that technology. That's cool. Let's take a moment and, and get to know our audience a little bit. How many of sure. you uh, came here specifically with the concept of learning RPG structure? Awesome. How many came here specifically for board game structure? How many came for another reason? <laughs> Would you be willing to say? No. That's fine. Does anyone else want to say why they why they came here if it was something other than those things? I have a hard time. Uh, I'm working on a game right now, and I have a hard time getting it from the this is a pile of documents that I use to reference to run for my players to this is something other people can use to run this without me explaining how to do it. Mm-hmm. And like I have I've done a lot of like sort of things for my players in the past and like like I guess mini games and level playing of hacks for stuff I run fortunately or run at cons or I help run at cons. But when I when it comes to something that theoretically some person who he doesn't know me from Adam is gonna do, I have no idea how to convey this information well while still getting like Walking across the crossing, you're getting across. Why do you even want to play this? Do you have anybody who's like close enough to you to feel socially obligated to read it, but hasn't read it yet? Uh, <laughs> most people who uh, are that who are that close, uh, I've already like you know I constantly yeah. I, I, I do that for. But, but it's also when it comes to actually writing stuff down, like my. My stuff I use to just run stuff is usually like it's in a series of documents that I, I, I know what's in the documents, so I'm going to go look and tap on and use it. And when I try to put that into a form for somebody else, I'm like, where do I even start? Um, if I can give a recommendation, start with Scrivener. It is the specific piece of technology that makes <coughs> organizing large documents like this feasible and effective. It's also dirt cheap. Uh, it's available on Windows and Mac. It's like twenty bucks. Just get it. It's it, it's great. Why? Um, because it breaks text into a set set of uh, index cards, and you move them along the hierarchy. So you play with the outline on that front. You can give specific target word counts on specific sections and subsections and sub subsections, mm-hmm. um, and you can just dynamically move t- content around. Uh, uh, to make sure that it's, you know, when you realize you're, you have to restructure this to here. Mm-hmm. It's a, the UI is very clear, the tutorial's great, and it's the perfect tool for structuring the text. When you have it structured, you pull it out and, and fiddle with it in Word. But for this stage, for compiling everything, it is the right tool for that purpose. 
You, you said you didn't know where to start. Um, yeah, because like when it comes, you yeah. talking about what, what, where do you start in RPG, like in any RPG? Like, is, I have a system that's fairly, I think, is fairly traditional. So if somebody uses a system that has task script resolution, they'll get it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that can people want to see for us, or if like, or if the if the world and setting are going to be more attractive. Some, something that I would do is I would look at your favorite games and the games that you find mm. easiest to run and I would look at how they're structuring their game text and, and, and see what they've put first see if they've put their setting first or if they've put their character gen first or how they've organized it because if you can take that and run it and enjoy running it it means they're doing a good job with their structure right? so I, I'm, I'm a big advocate of you know, if, if you're not quite sure about something Look at how other people are doing it. Look at how your peers, effectively, in, in the industry are doing it, and, and try doing it that way. See if it works. A, another similar perspective is to look at uh, games games that you almost like, but mm-hmm. you're frustrated by their structure, yeah. and really like critically analyze what is it that's that's screwing this structure up, mm-hmm. and and uh, by specifically thinking about the negative thing, you can you can very <coughs> consciously avoid it. Yeah. Yes. So I'll add one thing. Definitely get it out in some form or another, whatever it might end up being, random if it has to be, and then test that in some way or another. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. no amount of thoughts about what is good in theory will be as good as actual test data. One of the problems I have is that, so, for set, like, it's easy to find, it's not that hard to find set tests. If I'm willing to run something myself, mm-hmm. I have friends I, c- I can press a gang into it. Uh, Metatopia mm-hmm. is, is fantastic for that. But I find for RPGs the problem is finding people to blind test stuff. Because yes. that, that, that's a big investment of time because they have to be willing to invest to, to learn it. And for it to be useful to learn it without being able to just ask you what does this mean? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. then make, wanting to run it and then yeah. willing to spend the time to, to analyze, okay, with you, this didn't make sense or we had no idea how this resolution was to work or what is it, why is this study element there? What, like, do we do something with that? Like, mm-hmm. You can have others, just real quick, you can have others run it for you. That's like an interstitial step between strangers and uh, and doing it yourself, right? So you write a text for your friends who already know the game. If they can run it from that text, you're, you, that's your training wheels version. And then you try and figure out how, how to expand from there. Um, another thing that you can do to get blind playtesters is to make the game something people are interested in. And I did that a little bit with Misspent Youth early on by like going to every con, like driving to people's homes three states away, uh, 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 going to leaving like, the huh? Leaving, leaving the, the country? country? It was already published. About it. <clears throat> but yeah, but that's yeah, the yeah. kind of thing I would have done. Um, uh, and just building buzz about the game by play, by running it myself and making people interested, talking about it on podcasts, talking about it in other places and then all you need is like four or five people who live on the other side of the country from you and aren't going to get the chance to play it with you that that that's a whole like I had friends who I had met on the internet who I mostly only knew on the internet who who ran it for me because uh, they liked me you know and, and they weren't my local group and it was because I'd spent so much time like making that profile and when you eventually wind up publishing if that's what you want to do you're going to need that anyway so, now, I, so I have a suggestion for that, and it, <coughs> it, and it doesn't require recruiting a million blind playtest groups. Is just pitch your game to people and talk about it. So, like, keep a little tally card in your pocket 
pitch it to 20 people and just start telling them about it for four or five minutes or whatever and take note of the places where they start to react positively. Like when you are talking about which then do they start to lean forward and actually get interested. And then just introduce those topics in that order that most people were interested in. Because your manual is a sales tool for getting people excited about your game and just start with the stuff that people are most enthusiastic about. I would also encourage you to look for RPG community. Um, One of the best ways to get blind play testers is to say, look, if you blind play test my game, I'll I'll blind blind play play test yours. Yeah, Yeah, there should be like play test exchanges on the internet. Yeah, are you on Google Plus? Yes. Yeah, there's a a fantastic community on Google Plus, and there are quite a lot of Google Plus groups out there who are really interested in game design and and game design concepts. and, And they're a really good place to go to 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 kind of try and do like the like exchanges um, like what Jay was saying about kind of you know get people to do your game and you'll do theirs kind of so. can we uh, talk about forward references Cause if you explain what that means oh okay <laughs> <laughs> well uh, uh, yeah um, so a common problem in, in all game uh, role playing texts in my experience including the ones I've written including the ones I like is that a lot of times you need to like talk about the conflict system and you need to talk about the the scene structure system and you need to talk about the uh, setting of the overall session structure and these things are all interdependent of one another and they relied on you having terms that you know you know between and so you wind up in situations where people need to know rules before they can know the rules that you're talking about. And so that's what I mean. And and it's 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 a big deal for everybody. What obviously the first thing you do is you try for me is try not to write that way. Like if ever if at all possible, write things. That's why actually I started with that linear thing. Uh, but then also if you have to go with forward references, like give like a, a like a thousand mile view and say this is ahead, you know, and also give enough information in the local context that they can make sense of like the rest, even if they don't fully understand it. If you tell them, I'm going to go into this in more depth later, but just so you know now, there's like 13 tribes and here's a, a sentence on each one about what they're like. And, you know, look in the book later on to see, to dig into it when you make your character. Um, there is an excellent solution uh, that was explained by uh, D. Vincent Baker on his blog, the light bulb principle, I think, uh, which uh Effectively proposes a way to structure a text so it degrades uh, na- uh, gracefully. So every game has a filament. It is the core, essential, basic unit of play. Apocalypse World is roll two d six, ten plus, great. Seven to nine, mixed success. Six minus, uh, fail. Uh, talk to the GM. If you have nothing else, that on an index card is enough for you to run a version of the game, if you squint. Then there's more things around that that give you, um, these are moves, these are basic moves, these are um, the kinds of characters that could exist, these are the kinds of situations, these are what stats are. Then you grow larger of, these are the specific playbooks these are the specific procedures. These are the subsystems. Then you even get into layers of advice and uh, procedure uh, and sort of decoration around there. 
this way, so long as you have the core, you're, you can run something. When you have the next layer out, you can run something that is recognizably Apocalypse World. When you have something better than that, it's actually generally, roughly what the designer intended. And then it's a really good version of that game when you have all of the above. So, having that, explaining the basic core structure at the start, even if it's just the filament, does wonders in giving you context later on. Because you avoid the forward reference if you say, there are conflict phases. There's collaboration phases, and you move between these two phases in play. Now you can talk about and reference conflict phases without completely confusing the audience. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, so anyone else want to talk about that? Or did we cover it? I think that's pretty good, yeah. Cool, yeah, awesome. Yeah, she's still like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, I, I, that's on me for not being clear. Um, so I want to talk about maybe some interesting structures that we've seen. Um, uh, I've got three, um, but I'll give one and then I'll give you guys and then I'll come back. Uh, one of the cool ones that I like is the burning wheel structure um, where uh, they, they sort of... They've got this kernel of the game. You, what you were saying reminded me of this. They've got this kernel of the game that's a very tiny version of the game that you could play. You know, it's just about you know rolling your stats against someone else's stats and and seeing who wins and and building your character. And then he says, just play with this game for a while. And then as you find you need them, add in the complicated combat structure. Add in. The um, the the personnel the the finding people in the city structure you know and there's all these different things and it he tells you here's the pages to go to whenever you need the system go and get that system but if you don't want to you've got this nice little simple house to play in no okay I'll just keep going <laughs> I, I I have examples of terrible structures um, so I did a game called Posthuman Pathways. It is by necessity a terrible structure of a game because it's a game on five pamphlets. So it's I, it's a really it's one of those how the heck do I structure this text? So for instance, in that case, I had redundant information. Here are the core rules of play, and it was repeated on pretty much every pamphlet. And then it was a double gatefold, so you close it up and you could read all the normal rules. You open it up and it has these specific role rules. So what's specific to uh, the role associated with that specific pamphlet? And then these rotated around in play. Now, structuring this kind of thing is really hard, and I'm not sure if I was successful, but it's something worth considering, and like as a case study, it's a way of structuring text. Um... Board games are usually much, much, much better yeah. at organizing in most cases because the general expectation is that you are uh, learning to play from the rule book and you're just going through it um, step by step by step by step. Um, strangely, actually, the Mage Knight board game is a really interesting example because they have teaching rules and reference rules in separate booklets. Um, and so you follow through the teaching rules with tutorials, and then afterwards when you're playing, you dive into the reference rules, 
and having them as separate documents is a really interesting tack. That's neat. That, yeah. 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 I've noticed that a bunch of a bunch of RPGs over the years have, have started with a sort of big fat rule book, which has some maybe some introductory information, but then they put out introductory products, like sets totally separate products usually. But like uh, like I keep hearing the, the Pathfinder basic game I I hear people talk very highly of. And compare, as compared to the Pathfinder for Rubble, which is very much a traditional, this is a big, fat tone, uh, directly descended from 3 5, so it can be fairly daunting. Uh, but even with some other games like uh, Working to the Gods, was had a lot of problems getting performance and what to do in it. And then somebody put out a, uh, like a, a, basically a whole starting scenario with like sort of the rules, slow rules escalation. Uh, do you think it makes sense to try to, to just go, okay, there's going to need to be a teaching set of rules? And then a reference document set of rules, or, or do you think that that's just not feasible? It, it, in, it's doable. Case. It's doable. But what I try to do is have both in one. Like in Misspent Youth, every chapter ends with a bullet pointed summary of all the rules, including page callbacks to those rules. And then at the end of the whole thing, all of those summaries are collected in one place. So that's a reference text for for me. I'm satisfied with that as a small game. Um, so the size of a game makes a huge difference yeah. on this, right? Uh, if if you're making you know an enormous RPG, you you really you really can't make that like tutorial uh, successfully. You you really just have to be like, look, you have to read this book. Just here's all the things in the most useful way for processing an entire book. Uh, whereas at the opposite end of the end of the scale, you've got you know a, a card game, a board game that's one page where Again, it doesn't make sense to make a tutorial because you just gonna, you just just read this one page and then you can play. It'll take two minutes. You'll, you'll be fine. Fast and the Starlet doesn't need a tutorial. <laughs> yeah, right. And it, there are a lot of things in between. Uh, so you know there you know bigger board game texts like 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 Mage Knight, where um, yeah, it's it's enough that you'd really rather not read the whole thing if you can get that tutorial to to get you started. Um, and and the, the same is is also true of, of RPGs. There there are RPGs where you can say this is how you play, and you know whether you incorporate a reference into that as you do it or not. Like if it's small enough, you can do that. Um, it, it's all about the, the size of, of the game. Um, it's very you know with an asterisk based on what the game is, how how it actually works. So some other interesting structures I've seen. Um, I don't remember the name of the game anymore. I think at least one person, if not more than one person, did this. They made audio recordings of the rules. And then um, you, you bought the audio recordings and, and a booklet that was a reference sheet. So you learned the, the game by listening to a, uh, the, the designer tell you how to play it. And, and then when you were playing it, you would have these reference sheets to the rules. I, I, I haven't tried it. But it seems really like a good idea. It seems like it's taking that GM teaching method that's been standard for a long time and kind of professionalizing it in a way. You know, the downside is it can't be tailored to those people and those not the knowledge you have of them. But yeah, um, there was actually a um, read-along tutorial-style structure in uh, our last best hope from Magpie Games. I believe they actually had QR codes, so you could scan them, and it would explain what this concept is hmm. uh, in a YouTube video, hmm. uh, which is fascinating. Yeah, that's cool. In in like five years, uh, the 
board games have gone from no video explanations to all, you know the vast majority of games actually you can go online and watch a video of people explaining how to play the game or, or playing the game. Um, that would be interesting. I haven't seen a role playing game text like that, but that would be. I know, and that's crazy to me because you know if if we've got these RPGs where oh yeah this one person learns it and then they get their friends together and they teach right. them how to play it. It's a like, logical. Why can't I do a video of that, right? Um, and, and there are a ton of ways that RPGs and, and board games can can um, benefit from each other in that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, like I, I was going to say in in the board in the you know what's the size of your text? Do you have a tutorial thing? Um, there's so much that board games can learn from RPGs and RPGs from board games in how how you present. How you tell players how to play the game? Yeah, I mean, we've we've certainly found that when we do actual plays of our games, um, so for some of them, we'll have GMs kind of running through um, an introductory session with with newer people. Uh, a lot of people have found that a lot more accessible as a way of kind of learning how to actually play the game and what the game should look like um, in an idealized kind of form than than just reading the rules. It, it supplements reading the rules for us, like it's. We use both actual plays and also the rule book as well. Um, yeah, actual plays are like example text on crack. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Or steroids, yeah. yeah. Um, another thing that I've been trying lately, uh, borrowing from Monstagore 1244, is settings interspersed with rules. So, like, I did it much lazier. I gave some setting, do this now. I gave some setting, do this now. Monstagore is way cooler. You're in the game and you're playing the game and he gives you a sheet to, like, read just before you play the phase and it's got all the historical information you need about that period and everything that's relevant to the next section of the game you play that section then you take a break you look at the next thing it's a nice short page it's really cool and I, I, I've been so excited by that and I haven't seen a lot of things like that this is a slight tangent but uh, it is relevant um, uh, what's the name of the game uh the Extraordinary Adventures of Baron von Munchausen. Oh. Uh-huh. Uh, super oh. relevant to this, right? Because the first, so the 80 pages of, of this game is the game being explained how you play to it in character by the Baron von Munchausen, and then the next two pages are in plain English how you play the game. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yet it's totally worth reading those, the 80 page version. Uh, uh, a, because it's just a really good read, and, and B, because it so poignantly uh, teaches you how, you know, how you're meant to actually play the game as opposed to what the rules of the game are. Oh, uh, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, and that's another thing that um, uh, example text does too, is that, you know, you, you can say what all the procedures are, but when you give example text, you're you're revealing things about like the table culture and 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 the tone yeah. that you imagine for the game. And and I've also used it as a way to say here are all the different kinds of settings you can do with the game, right? Like I'll do different examples in different setups, so I can be like, look, it's this silly G-rated kids, you know, being pranksome, and it's this like scary, you know, only play with your friends and don't talk about it on the internet thing, you know. Um, there's some really interesting things you can do with the example text that are worth highlighting. Uh, one, you can highlight um, edge cases that you know are going to come up. When you have a tie, and then you have another tie subsequently, uh, and your uh, resolution mechanism does this, 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 then do this. 
Secondly, you can show people making mistakes. Yeah. Identify what you think are common mistakes based on your playtesting experience, and then have someone make that mistake, and then someone else in the example set text say, Hey, Bob, you probably shouldn't do that. That's great. The, the rules on page X say that's wrong. Now have a daiquiri. <laughs> I mean... Um, it'd be fun to do that meme. The fuck is wrong with you? It's right here. It's passive aggressive game designer. I thought you read the book. <laughs> so in you're in, making the designer cry. So in game design, uh, every rule, every card, every piece of text, every facet of your game should ideally serve more than one purpose. Um, so you know, I need a set of cards that give us resources, but I also need. Uh, cards that give players context for what things are worth. If I can put, if I can get some of those cards that can accomplish both of those tasks, um, I've, I've you know simplified everything while serving both of those masters. And you know, Jason was talking earlier. RPG books need to serve a lot of different masters. Every piece of text that you write, you know, have this is the main function of this text to tell players what this rule is. But it's also you know what's the, what else can you get out of this by wording it just a little bit differently? Can you get you know the fiction across can you get you know some humor in to, to keep them engaged any time that you can come back to a piece of text and say okay I want to preserve the function of this text but also try to infuse just a little bit more meaning and value into it mm-hmm. do so um, this is very unstructured funnily enough uh, but <laughs> I just another thing that occurred to me that I found out is that you need to repeat yourself a lot Sometimes. What's that? You need to repeat yourself? You should repeat yourself. <laughs> oh, that's uh, good. Could you repeat that just for clarity? Yes, you should repeat yourself. Ah, good. Um, so I had, you know, uh, uh, there, there are these target numbers for different scene types that you need to hit in Misspent Youth. And in the scene descriptions, they're all there. But then there's another part of the game where you're actually having the conflict that those numbers rely on. And when I first wrote the game... Uh, I I just said, you know, I actually included, like, see back to this page. But then people kept getting confused, and I was like, oh, I'll just repeat that list of numbers here because no one's charging me more than, you know, a quarter of a penny for every page that I print, so I might as well do that, you know? I found that to be very helpful. And and the trick is, like, not to overdo it, but I I, I think what's important is to, is, is to do it when whenever, if it, especially if it's something small or important, uh, or both, <laughs> um, or if there's been a long separation uh, between two elements. Yeah, I think that's a, that's um, a, a way or a really great example of when you can use text or visual kind of separators. So you can write something in text in in one part, and then call it out in like box text or in a sidebar in another part. So you've got that repetition, but you've also got a visual breakup and and a, a very visual. Reminder of the key elements from the previous chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, one key thing as part of that visual element. Illustrations really matter. Mm-hmm. Place them carefully. Do good art direction. Uh, so for instance, I ha- in Spark, one of my favorite illustrations, had, um, has a hierarchy of uh, attributes, which has a small little girl trying to push a D4 all the all the way up to a plus size orc woman uh, casually uh, balancing a d20 on her uh, pinky finger, and it's uh, the ascending size of dice and what this actually represents in, ter- in terms of 
you know, physical competence mm. and physical skill. This, right beside the attribute thing, means it's a pretty easy thing to say, oh yeah, that bodybuilder is a D10. Okay, yeah, that matches with the text. The visual matches text, and that means that there's more context channels to work off. Um, it also means people can find this, because all they have to do is look for, you know, the 400-pound orc uh, bodybuilder. Yeah. And it's really easy to find that section for some reason. Yeah, the orc becomes signposts in the text. Yep. Yeah. And bo- both of these concepts are true not just for uh, what text, how you should write the text of your thing, but when you're, you're in a, at a table telling people how to play a game... You need to you need to use both of those techniques as well, especially then because people's attention wanders. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you know you're going to say ten facts in a row. No one can process you know all ten of those facts. They're they're going to get you know eight or nine of them depending on how interested uh, they are. Um, so so by repeating those things and by giving illustrations that allow them to see it not just as this is a rule, but like oh I get what this means in the game, really helps people to understand those things. And actually, you said something extremely important. Uh, seven, uh, six or seven is usually the max that a human brain can, can can remember in terms of a list. So, bulleted lists that are seven or fewer are great. Subsections, seven or fewer, are great. There's actually some discussion that the way that humans set up hierarchies in uh, organizations is all based off the fact that one person can't run a thousand people beneath them, but they can have four subordinates, who in turn have four subordinates, who in turn have four subordinates, and we can manage that information uh, by breaking things into into these clumps. So um, these are really important uh, principles in terms of text design to make sure that you don't have list of 20 things. I am slightly critical at one particular role-playing game design that has a large, large 20-some-odd list of items in it. Hmm. Um, as opposed to, you know, three or four, or more, more guidance on how you would, say, make your GM moves. I love that context channels phrase. It's the first time I've heard it. It makes instant sense to me, and I'm going to use it. Because... Um, I blame Ryan Macklin for that. All right, I'm not going to eat. No, you reminded me of something else that's useful in structuring game text, and that is parallelism. Uh, so, if in your first chapter you you set you know a, a certain structure, and every chapter thereafter follows a similar structure, that helps helps people to to absorb those things. And and even when they need to go back to reference, they can say, okay, I, I know I can skip the first two paragraphs because because they're intro and, and something like that. Um, and and that's not just true of you know the game text itself. That's also true of the game design itself. Anytime that you can make two similar mechanics, the same mechanic with different names, the fate fractal. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a huge win. Yeah, and, and I know you've already heard me going on about word documents and structuring. Um, but something that I find very very useful when editing and structuring game texts is is just taking it into Word and um, breaking it into headings and subheadings. Because it's a really, really valuable tool to give you an overview of your text and where there are giant... Like, if you have a character generation chapter that has no subheadings, then then you need to be breaking that down more and structuring it in a better and clearer way for a reader to understand. And it shows you where 
you've maybe skewed a lot of text in one section and very little mm. text in another section. So it's a very, very useful tool, I think, as an overview of, of just being able to look at your complete text and say, how is this structured and how is it broken down? And so how accessible is it to a reader in terms of, of, of the amount of text I'm presenting at any given time on any given topic? Yeah, I've noticed recently that like uh, there's one of the games that I've been working on just happens to be in InDesign at the moment, and that's where I'm going to keep working on it. And I think I'm doing better work on it because I'm looking at it in a, like I'm I'm laying it out while I'm writing it, and that makes that means that I understand it better. You know, like it's actually helping me learn the game because it's still being made. You know, um, anything else, or do we want to see if anyone has questions? Yeah, let's do questions. Yeah. We got like ten got minutes. Is anyone working on a project that needs, yeah, apart from, or yeah, or do you have a specific problem that you're like, how do I get past this? Yes. I think uh, comments on uh, character sheets, playbooks, stuff along those lines, that mm. microcosm design. Right. Yeah. Uh, user interface. Fundamentally, that's the best way to look at all of these sheets and reference yeah. sheets. Um, this is where you are dumping your brain, <laughs> where you're showing it to other people. Um, I, there's been a number of recent game designs that have central sheets that track things. Um, I'm just going to plug my friend's game Headspace. It has an emotion stress track in the middle of the table. So it says, oh, our rage is at four. Everyone at the table is filled with, a, with almost boiling level rage because it's a game of shared consciousness and shared emotions. Um, so this is a giant signal to the entire table about the state of the fiction. Things in the middle are really interesting in terms of design and are a good way of making links between the, uh, the mechanics in the game text and the actual experience of play. It's the main interface with the game for yeah. most players. You know, even, even if it's a small indie game where everyone reads the book... The main interface of play is that sheet, and I've heard, I think it was uh, 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 Luke Crane like said that it's like maybe the most important thing in the game, you know, to get that sheet right. And unfortunately, it's it's the skill I utterly lack. Like other than art, it's the one skill I lack the most for game design. Yeah, apart from potentially dice or minis or something like that, it's the thing that yeah. players will remember. Yeah. Like when you say, "Hey, remember D and D?" But like, yeah, it was this sheet, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and everyone has those, you know, battered and old sheets from like really long campaigns where yeah. you've like, oh, yeah. done all of that rubbing out and rewriting and rubbing out and rewriting as you've gotten more and more XP and gotten better and better characters. Yeah, and, and there's so, definitely a yeah. a spectrum mm -hmm. of of how, what what you need on your character sheet. So if you're playing something like you know D and D Fourth Edition, uh, then you you've got a lot of numbers and, and information that are going to directly affect you know strategic choices and and you want to make that information as accessible as possible and and how to use it as accessible whereas if you're doing something like fate core uh, where you're not so much worried about the mechanics and the numbers so much as like really expressing your character um, then those two sheets serve very different purposes right the fate core you really want to give the players the tools to mm -hmm. put themselves or their character onto that sheet yeah, you're going to want a lot more free text aren't you in, in that kind of latter example and a yeah. lot more kind of boxes that are easily findable yeah. in the first one um, yeah. so no, we're not completely focusing on character sheet design there is or was another uh, seminar on that specific purpose 
And it will be available on the RPG Design Panelcast. Um, and it's a good one. I've seen it. So, so uh, one of the really interesting things to pay attention to is heat maps. Uh, there's a lot of research on how people look at screens and pages. And in uh, Western uh, society, that is the top left. So if you cluster the most important key information, the top left of the character sheet, or even the top left of spreads on in books, that is the information people will be able to more easily find. And you can bury the unimportant stuff or the stuff you want to hide in the bottom right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, heat maps are fascinating tools. Um, yes. Um, books like Fate Core and like Savage Worlds uh, like to separate their their game mechanics and their their text away from setting and context of uh, a world and environment. I'd like to hear what you know the panel thinks about that. Like, uh, I mean, obviously in the indie. Around we don't see that. Usually it's very much uh, pushed together. And I, I always thought that that was more digestible, but I, I found that the more I talk about this with other people, the people really seem to be on different spectrums. Some people think it's great, helps you immerse in the different mechanics, gets you a little feel for it so you can kind of go through the dry stuff. And some people feel like, no, it's great when your book is half the size and I can have one book for the mechanics and I can have one book for the setting. I would say they're both perfect for different audiences. Yeah. Yeah. And also different games. Like there are some even indie games where there's no setting, you know, or, or and that's sort of true of like Fate or even GURPS, you know. There's no setting there, um, or the setting is a whole other product, yeah. you know. Not not so much like a like a like a. Yeah, I guess GURPS is the t- prototypical example of what you're talking about. But also <laughs> GURPS as a game by itself is really just by itself. Like, those other books are like, oh, here are some options, you know? Um, I mean, as Savage a... World's a generic like that, too. I guess mm-hmm. Fate, I guess, would be the same. But are there pros, do you think, to it? I mean, other than what I mentioned, I don't know if those are really good reasons uh, to do it or not. They're... Integrating it means that the setting is tightly bound with the rules, mm-hmm. it, uh, and all of these things are conceptually close together. That's great. Conflict. Well, conflicts like on the uh, red plains of Mars are like are usually like this. Conflict on the blue deserts of Venus are like this. Okay, yeah. So we know that these are the kinds of conflicts that are common. So this is really handy. Breaking it out means that you can easily reference this with third party product X, Y, and Z. I, I think. I think for me, I I would much prefer to allow customers to only have to buy one book yeah. and run the game from that one book if at all possible I mean in some cases like, like Jane was saying it's it's just you know there's maybe there's, there's, there's a different audience or a different way that you're trying to approach it but I think for me personally I would much prefer the the only commitment to be to buy this one book and giving you everything in this <coughs> one book and then if you want to buy more books great but not kind of I feel like it's it's slightly kind of cheating and a bit mean to kind of yeah. go well yeah you buy this book but then you also have to buy this book and this book to get the combat and this book to get you know the monsters and this you know that kind of thing yeah. so I, I really like Fate Core I also really like the original Deadlands which mm-hmm. had a tightly integrated theme and mechanics mm-hmm. um, and I feel like if you took Fate Core uh, you took those exact rules and you said okay here's one of the settings for Fate and I'm going to put sell this as a single book without changing any of the mechanics 
I would find that disingenuous. Mm. Um, I if if your if your system is wrapped around your theme and your story intimately, and those two like are inseparable, please package them together. That's going to be an awesome you know unit. And if they're not, please keep them separate because if if I can tell any story with with this fate core rules, I don't really want to read your setting. I want to make my own. That's the power of that system. Uh, so I, th- yeah, I think we have maybe one more question. Yeah. Well, mine's kind of piggyback on that because actually I'm designing a generic system, so setting will be separate. Right. It's such a generic system. Mm-hmm. Um, so since setting would be different, or is there anything in particular for structuring the setting text that you would do maybe differently from doing a normal table for its combined? Uh, setting text is almost entirely filled with hooks. Good God, does it have to be filled with hooks. Um, making it modular, making it customizable. Um, because if you just, say, give people a um, travel log that is straightforward and dry and there's no customization, people won't engage. If you say, here are 12 factions, pick six of them for your game, then you've got a reason to read through all of them and go... Well, I like this one. I like this one. Mm, let's balance. Oh, right. Let's get this, this, this. Mm-hmm. And it turns more into a shopping experience. So people get engaged and, and you get broader context. Certainly, I think a lot of setting books also include mechanics as an incentive to buy. Yeah. You know, exclusive mechanics to that situation. Yeah, it allows you to. There might be a little of that, but like I said, it's pure setting. Mm-hmm. My preference for a setting book would be sort of the the setting was delivered systemically in a way where like like you were saying you're like okay here's everything the setting could be this is a setting generator and you're going to decide like what's important and what's valuable and, and that sort of thing and 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 you can still have lots of real setting in there too and you know it can be like a b type things or it can be like um, there's this one uh, the the vampire third edition series. Um, they had these setting books that had here are three possible answers for this mystery or you can make it up your own. That was really good. I liked I liked it, especially with them having that history of being the Metaplot company to then say, no, we're explicitly saying that there's no official answer and here are three ideas was really cool. Um, and I recommend that you take a look at Hillfolk because Robin it, it, Laws, everyone right? contributed to that project, I think it's safe <laughs> to say. Yeah, pretty much everyone. Ever and ever. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but actually, that is that is a fantastic point. Actually, Hillfolk is a really great example of a book that takes literally a book of settings in Blood on the Snow, and, and just in a very very simple like four pages introduces like thirty new settings um, for the core rulebook, which is in a different book. Um, so I think yeah, kind of speed of access is quite important, um, but flavor as well I think is another really important yeah, yeah. thing. If you're doing a specifically setting book, you're you're not that book isn't having to do with the work that Jason was talking about core books having to do earlier you know that's just your world that's just your setting that's just the people in it that's just the the type of experiences your players are going to have in that world and you can really go a lot deeper into the the feel of that world in a setting book and I think I, I would I'd certainly you know capitalize on your ability to do that in a separate setting book so I think we need to let people go. So yep. thank you. Very Thanks, everyone. Much. Thank you. Uh, oh, we, I don't know if there's something after this, but we should probably get out.